Your sins are forgiven. This is the most important thing that any one of us need to hear. Your sins are forgiven because the forgiveness of sins is our greatest need. Souls are eternal. I remember Brother Albert Chong giving a testimony a couple years ago. He said, two things are eternal, right? God's word and people, souls. God's word, this is why we focus on God's word, this is the truth. And souls, souls of men and women are eternal. And these souls are going to either live in two places, two locations, either in heaven, eternal heaven with God, or in eternal hell apart from God forever. And this is why forgiveness of sins is the issue, because this will determine whether you're in heaven with God or apart from him forever. So today, good news, forgiveness is available. So listen up. If you are in Christ, be encouraged. And perhaps if you're a guest, this is an opportunity to really think about what God is offering you through Jesus Christ. We're going to take a look at how Jesus forgives a sinner. And we are uh, back into the book of Mark again, so we'll be in Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or your phones, I'd highly encourage us to follow along. I'll be reading out the NASB version. And we'll be in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. So if you're able, please rise with me and as I read Mark 2, 1 through 12. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room. Not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they, came, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Verse 12. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your eternal word. And Lord, I pray your spirit will allow us to see your son, your eternal son, clearly through the preaching of your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Little sermon roadmap before we get into the sermon. I think this hopefully helps you kind of track along on our journey today. But um, we're going to have two problems presented through the scriptures here. At Mark 2, we're going, to have, we're going to see two problems here. And also, after that, we're going to see two responses, how Jesus responds to each problem. Okay? Problem number one. Problem number one. The paralytic. The paralytic. Jesus returns back home. 
He's been traveling in northern Israel, above the, in the northern region of the Sea of Galilee, going from town to town, preaching the word, preaching the gospel, that he is the good news of salvation. He's also been healing many people, many illnesses, casting out demons, a leper was healed, and the crowds are coming. But now, after several weeks, maybe even months, he's back home at his home base in Capernaum, and it says that he was at home in verse 1. And many commentators believe that this is Peter's home, where after Paul, uh, Peter decided to follow Jesus, he opens up his home for Jesus to use as a home base. But the word gets out. Guess what? He's back. Remember him a couple months ago? He was teaching in the synagogue, casting out demons. Remember how he healed Peter's mother-in-law? Remember there was a lion coming out of the house, how he was healing people? And then he disappeared. He went out preaching from town to town. But he's back. But he's back. And the crowd rushes to see him, and his home is jam-packed. Have you been there before when your house is absolutely packed? And they're there to listen to him preach and teach again. That's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel, the good news of who he is. And now the problem or the crisis. Every story has a problem. Every story has a crisis. The paralytic shows up. Of course, he's not showing up on his own because he can't move. He, he lost ability to use his legs, perhaps his upper body even. He's laying on a mat. He's been relegated to living this way for who knows how long. Perhaps he's been born this way. Perhaps he got some kind of illness. Perhaps he suffered some kind of trauma that left him in this condition. We don't know, but we do know this. He's been living in deep suffering, deep, deep suffering, in a helpless and hopeless condition. Today, if you're paralyzed through nerve damage, apart from a miracle, you're going to end up dying that way. So in this situation... Without the care of modern technology, this man was clearly in a helpless and hopeless situation. However, this is what's interesting. This is what this man has been graced with friends who deeply loved him. Deeply loved him. If you have friends like this, you're a blessed man or woman. The friends may have said to themselves, hurry, let's go to Peter's house. Let's go to Peter's house. I heard that he's teaching there. Finally, he's back. We tried to get him the first time, but then he left. We need to get him to Jesus right now. We can't waste any more time. We can't wait in the lines like we did last time. We got to get him now. And then what, the Bible says that there are four men that carried this man on the pallet. And then when they got to the home, there were some major obstacles. It was read in verse 4. The group perhaps began to think to themselves, there's so many people here already. How did people find out? How did they find out so quickly? I thought we're ahead of the game on this one. The crowd is too big. There's no way we could get in. And when we ask them, they don't even move for us. What's wrong with these people? Can't they see we have an emergency here? We can't even get to the front door. There's too many people. They must have asked themselves this question. What are we going to do? Shall we come back later? What do you think the answer was? Well, we know what the answer was. No, no, that's what we did last time and we missed him. We have to find a way. We have to get him to Jesus. We missed him last time. We don't know how long he's going to be here. Well, 
You've got to get him to Jesus. I mean, you, you can almost feel the determination. You can see the, the laser-focused eyes as these men probably talk to each other. No, 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 we've got to get this done. He's counting on us. He's counting on us. We're not going to miss him this time. Something's going to happen today. Perhaps they put their heads together. How are we going to get this done? How can we get this done? Maybe one of them says, I got it. Let's get him to the roof. Let's get him to the roof. We can carry him up the stairs. We could dig through the roof and lower him into the main room where Jesus is teaching. Let's get that done. And as you may think, like uh, what were homes like in the first century? Of first century, Palestinian homes had flat roofs, which they used as gathering places, like a big living room. As it got hot, they gather up there in the evenings and have a time of fellowship. And oftentimes they had an outdoor uh, staircase where people could access the roof from the outside. And this roof wasn't an elaborate roof as, as we have today, but they had beams, branches put on top of it, mixed in with baked mud, and then put on, perhaps even covered with t- uh, uh, clay tiles at the, uh, on the outside. So what the men could do is they could remove the tiles and start digging, and start digging, and start digging. So let's shift the focus to what's happening inside now. We kind of understand what's happening outside the house, on top of the roof now. These men are digging and digging and digging. Somehow they're able to get this man up the steps. What's happening inside? Well, the Lord is teaching. He's preaching. There's no one quite like him who taught. In chapter 1, there's no one who speaks with authority like him. He's not like the scribes, they say. I could imagine the people hanging on every single word that comes out of the Lord's mouth with bated breath. What are you going to say next? What are you going to say next? I need to get this down. I, I can't forget this. I need to hear. I mean, imagine we're in this small house. It's standing room only. You probably could hardly breathe. You're on top of each other. I mean, it's that type of a setting here. And then what begins to happen? Well, then dirt begins to fall on your head all of a sudden. Like, what? What's going on? Is there someone on the roof? I think I hear somebody above me. What's going on? I hear some pounding that's going on above me. What? What's going on? It, what? What? What are those faces? What are those guys doing? Imagine if this was Peter's house. I'm wondering what's going through Peter's mind right now, right? <laughs> They're tearing apart my house. And then they start beginning, they begin to lower this man with the ropes down, 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 down in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. The paralytic had devoted friends. I mean, in some ways, how can you not be moved by the devotion to these friends? Do you have friends like this? Do you have family members like this? He was deeply loved. And these men were not going to take no for an answer. I mean, just, even that, that determination should move your hearts. Like, wow. They removed every obstacle to get him to Jesus Christ. There are many barriers in this story. There's a huge crowd. There's this roof. There's even social norms. Like, people just don't do normal things like this. Normal people don't do things like this on an everyday event, right? This is that's why part of the story is so riveting. And also they had to get over the stigma of saying that this is our friend. In the Jewish day, sin 
was often associated with this type of illness. So by them parading around with this man, they're basically saying, he's our guy. And yes, people could make judgments about that. That's your friend? So they're saying, forget all that. We need to get him to Christ. There's no stopping these friends. They're relentless. I love that word. They're relentless. They're motivated to get him to Jesus Christ. And as I, as I thought about that, I, I began to think about myself. I began to think about people who were relentlessly praying for me before I became a Christian when I was in college. I could see some of you right now who prayed for me, talked to me, let me be part of your Bible studies, let me ask ridiculous questions, being patient with me. And I see many people with lays right now, and I, I think to myself, did somebody invite you today to come to the Lord's Day here at Evergreen Church? Maybe someone brought you here today. Maybe they picked you up and brought you here today. Well, I just want you to know you love very much. If, they, if you're that person and you go, yeah, actually someone invited me. Yeah, actually someone brought me. You are loved very much. You're a blessed person. Because this person who invited you could be a family member. Could be even your own parent or your spouse. Say, hey, we're going to go to church today. They have to kind of go through stuff to get you here, right? It's kind of an uncomfortable thing. But hey, you want to come to church? You heard about God? I mean, particularly in this day and age, right? There's so many, everyone's just trying to stay in their lanes and kind of talk about the acceptable things of life. So for them to invite you, they kind of said, forget all those things. You need to get to Christ. And I think they're confident enough that from the pulpit and from our classes and such, you're going to hear about God. You're going to hear about Jesus Christ. And I believe, although they could talk to you themselves as well as they should, this is their attempt to bring you to Christ. And you're going to hear about Jesus Christ today. He is a topic, and the forgiveness of sins is the issue. To listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. This could be the most important talk that you ever hear in your entire life. You're going to hear about Jesus Christ so how does Jesus respond to this issue? This paralytic is dropped in front of him. Is he going to be irritated and say, man, you're ruining my sermon? As distractions are difficult for all preachers and teachers, we all understand this. How does he respond? Well, let's look at the response. First response, the priority, the priority, the priority. The Lord's response will reveal his top priority, why he came to earth. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, verse 5, Son or child, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, famous Bible verse says this, Now faith is assurance of things. What? Hope for the conviction of things not seen. And what did they hope for? Well, certainly I believe that they... They hoped that Jesus Christ would heal this man of paralysis. <laughs> all, these, all these miracles taking place. But they were also aware of Jesus' teaching. Jesus preached at the synagogue in Capernaum. And he, what did he preach? Out of Mark 1, 15, says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sins and believe in the gospel. This is his message. And I believe... They believed this as well. Their faith included salvation. 
Jesus says, I mean, the Bible says, he, seeing their faith. And we, we're going to find out that Jesus could read minds, and, and only God could do that, and Jesus is God. So we're going to find out in the next segment. But it says, seeing their faith. I don't think it requires a mind reader to see their faith. James 2 says, faith without works is dead. I mean, they're showing you what they believe, right? Don't tell me, show me, right? We, we, as parents and people, we've said that, right? Don't talk about it, be about it, right? And these men were going all out because true faith leads to action. We understand this. True faith leads to action. What you believe leads to how you live. You know this. This is true. This is how you set your priorities. This is how you set your agenda. This is how you spend your money. This is who you decide to be friends with. This is where you decide to go to college. So forth and so on. I mean, it's all there. What you actually believe deep in, down inside of you is how you live. It starts here. It starts here. What you believe. It's called conviction. This is called conviction. Their faith was clear. It was lived out. And imagine this. Jesus must have been thrilled. Jesus Christ must have been thrilled. Why was he thrilled? I mean, they, he, it's evident how desperate they were. And this leads to their determination. We got to get this done. We got to get this done. Talk about faith. How can you not admire this? How can you not want to desire to have this type of faith where it's relentless? Your life is sold out for Christ. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, all out effort to get to him. So how does Jesus respond? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus zeroes in on the man's greatest need. He gets laser focused on into the man and says, this is what you need. This is the priority of forgiveness. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. Clearly, in that crisis moment, Jesus goes to what he's there for. We've talk, I had a chance to talk to missionaries and other people who are interested in doing things like that. I said, listen, you have to be crystal clear on what you're going to do. What are you there for? What are you going there for? Otherwise, you're just going to get tossed to and fro. Now let me ask us a question here. Would you be disappointed? Would you be disappointed if you were these men coming to Jesus? Would thoughts come to your mind like, he didn't heal him. He didn't relieve his suffering. Doesn't he realize how much he's suffering? He didn't give back him back his legs. He didn't give him a chance to have a family, to start a family, to support a family. I mean, do you think these men were thinking this? To earn a living? Well, Jesus is making it crystal clear. First things first, forgiveness is the greatest need that this man has. I mean, think about it. Why else would people come to church today? I, I hear a lot of reasons. The more I'm involved in vocational ministry, as I talk to different people, I hear various reasons why people would come to Christ or even come to church. And Jesus is not coming here to talk about my physical health necessarily. Jesus Christ is not here to talk about how to grow my career Jesus Christ isn't even talking about how to fix the government and the inflation. He's not interested in these things. Jesus Christ is not talking about social justice. How do we fix the injustice of this world? He didn't come to do these things. This, these are not the priorities of our Lord. 
This is not why he left heaven's throne room to come to earth. Jesus' response clearly lets us know what his top priority is, is the forgiveness of sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. And I like how, and I really appreciate how Mark records that Jesus' son, this is a term of endearment. Jesus actually loved this man. He says, son, child, you're like family to me. He cared deeply for this man. And says, son, your sins are forgiven. What is sin? Think of archery. Right? This is a picture, biblical picture of sin. The yellow in the middle is the bullseye. And sin, in essence, basically means missing the mark. Are you hitting God's bullseye with every single thought that you throw out? Every single word that you shoot out? Every single action that you shoot towards the target? Is, is it hitting bullseye every single time? And on top of that, is your, are your motivations perfectly in alignment with God? Bullseye, bullseye, bullseye. If you're really honest with yourself, of course not. Probably even coming to church, you might have thought something that, uh, I just missed the mark on that. Well, the Bible says that every single one of us are sinners, and we've all missed the mark. And unforgiven sinners will be punished in eternal hell. This is what the Scripture says. This is what God says. This is why we need forgiveness. And forgiveness carries its meaning in the Old Testament of being taken away. Taken away. It's being sent away. When our sin is sent away from us, God doesn't somehow just forget that about these sins. I mean, these sins are still happening and have happened. But the guilt is removed from us. God no longer holds us guilty if he's forgiven us of these sins. Just like if you've forgiven a family member. You've forgiven them, but you still remember what happened, but you've forgiven them. This is, we understand this. This is what forgiveness is about, so he could declare us innocent. Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, (laughs) that's far, they never touch, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Here's a point of application, church. When suffering people come to you, Pastor Dan talks about this all the time in biblical counseling, discipleship and sin and suffering. When suffering people come to you, how do you respond? Where do you ultimately point them to? Right? If a suffering non-believer comes to you, what do you say to them? Do you point into some secular help? Do you give them some practical advice? Hey, those things may help, but ultimately is what I'm talking about. Ultimately, where are you trying to get to? Where is the end game of your advice leading them to? Non-believers need forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's the issue. This is where you're trying to get to eventually. It may not be day one. I get that. It may be building up to a relationship. I get that. But eventually, this is where you're getting to. If you love them. If you like these four men carrying... This man to Jesus. They need to be declared innocent in God's court because right now he's condemned sinners to hell. Eternal destruction is what's waiting them. And what if a suffering believer, suffering brother or sister, true believer comes to you? I think what's important is always to remind them that if they're genuinely in Christ, they're always a son or daughter, they're always a family member. And they can always come to the Father 
as a loving father, loving, gracious father. Think about it, parents, right? If any of our children, they're always our children no matter what. But if they've wronged us or wronged something, it's, it's anyone in the family or done made a mistake, they're always going to be yours. You're always going to love them. However, you know how critically important it is to restore that right fellowship. There could be some tension there that you need to resolve. Family's family. We understand this. And the Christian life is, is a battle. There are many ups and downs. It's, it's a process. It's a process. And then when you go down, when you stumble, are you confident enough that Jesus has forgiven you so that you can come to him as a loving father? I guess my exhortation for the Christians in this room is, do you actually believe that Jesus says to you, your sins are forgiven? Do you believe that? Or do you still hang on to these things? And ah, I don't know about that one. Do you actually believe that? Do you actually embrace, yes, I'm a child of God because of Jesus Christ, because he's told me your sins are forgiven. Do you actually believe this? If you do believe this, and you're confident in this, I believe you could go to him as a loving father. Because no matter what, my position with him is secure. However, I want our deep, loving, joyful uh, fellowship relationship with him. This is how this works. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, right? As David wrote in Psalm 51. Now there's another problem brewing here in the house. Another problem. We saw the paralytic and we saw how God addressed him. Second problem. Problem number two is the the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Verse 6 and 7. Conflict was resulting now. Jesus is confronted and there's conflict. Uh, and oftentimes it was re- with religious leaders. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Mark, this is confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. You're going to get used to hearing about the Pharisees and the scribes. And they did not battle him over miracles. That wasn't really the issue in, in Mark here. It was more about what came out of Jesus' mouth. I mean, the words that that he spoke confronted the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 6, let me read verse 6. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Who are the scribes? They're primarily Pharisees. Who are Pharisees? They're the religious leaders in Judaism. They were the experts in the law and particularly applying the Jewish law to people in different situations. They're sometimes called lawyers. And the enemy had critics planning in the crowd. And the Pharisees and scribes begin to ask deep inside their hearts, why does this, verse 7, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is one of those inquisitive type of questions. Now this is, they're mocking God. They're scoffing God in their hearts. They didn't have the guts to say it right then and there, but they're thinking it. Many scoffers who keep that in their hearts and they're basically saying Jesus dishonors God by talking this way. Jesus, being a man, makes himself out to be God by declaring and proclaiming forgiveness of sins. They knew what the law said. There are experts that apply in Leviticus 24 says blasphemers those who speak lies or dishonors God or those who make themselves out to be God are to be stoned and to be killed. They understood how to apply the law. All right, they knew this. But they're right about one thing. They're wrong about Jesus right here in their thoughts, but they're right about one thing. 
When they say in verse five, verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly right. They had that nail. Bullseye. They, they hit the target on that one. Only God can forgive sins. Absolutely only God. And Jesus was not whispering who he was. Like, hey, this is who I am. By declaring forgiveness of sins. You know, he was being crystal clear about who he is. By saying, your sins are forgiven. He knew exactly the implications by saying, your son, your sins are forgiven. Basically, the implication is this. I am God and I have the authority to forgive sins. That's what he's saying. And the, and the scribes and the Pharisees were completely clear about what he's saying. This was, there's was nothing ambiguous about this. Jesus puts up a red sign that says, I am God. And the scribes and the Pharisees know exactly what he's saying. They know exactly what he was trying to convey. What do you say about Jesus now, church? As you're sitting here, guess, who do you say Jesus is? Do you say that Jesus is a blasphemer or do you believe that he's God? That is the question of the, of the hour, is it not? Is Jesus a blasphemer? Is he lying? Is he deceiving all these people? Is he deceiving millions of people throughout the centuries uh, that Jesus is a liar? Is, is that who he is? Is he Satan disguised as Jesus? Is he the demon? Is he the devil himself lying to countless people about who he is? Is that who he is? Or is he just crazy, right? C.S. Lewis, is he a liar, lunatic, or is he Lord? Is he crazy, Or is he God? Do you actually believe this? If you believe this, Jesus is God, that he, then therefore Jesus is the Lord of your life. He is trustworthy. Every word that comes out of his mouth, you can believe. Every word that he has spoken, you can go to the grave with absolute confidence. As was talked about, God's word is eternal. That he does have the authority to forgive sins. He does have the authority to forgive sins. He is the Savior of the world. Who is Jesus Christ? We're not going to take a public inventory right now, but inside your heart, is he blasphemer or is he God? You don't need to tell me. You don't need, you need to tell the next person next to you, but God sees your heart. We're going to find out real quick right now that Jesus is able to read your mind and your heart. Let's go to the response here. Let's take a look at Jesus' response here. Response number two, the proof. The proof. Jesus provides a proof that he is God. Verse eight, immediately Jesus, aware in his heart, in his spirit, that they were reasoning that way within themselves. I mean, Jesus is showing that he is God. He could read people's minds. They could not hide anything from him. You cannot hide anything from him. You know, we could fool people, but one person we can't fool is God. He can read their minds. He can read your minds like an open book. The only, only one that could do this is God. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. The heart, that's right. Psalm 139, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. He reads us like a book. And Jesus is clearly demonstrating that he is God himself. But I believe that Jesus' response is ultra, super gracious here. Let's keep reading down from verse, uh, finish up verse 8 and 9. And he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? He calls them out. He didn't just let them sit there thinking these things. He could have just forgiven the paralytic and then moved on. But no, 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 no. He's, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to call you out. 
Is that gracious or not gracious, right? Is that too direct? Well, this is very gracious. Verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Which is easier, church, to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or to say to the paralyzed man, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, which is easier? Just answer in your mind here. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to the man who has no use of his body to get up, pick up your pallet and walk? Well, it's easier to tell somebody that they're forgiven because you can't verify what happened internally, right? This is an internal thing. It's a greater miracle to heal, uh, heal someone of their sins, no question. But to say, your sins are forgiven. We've had false teachers throughout the centuries who do that, right? Do, have we not? And so it's e- actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's unverifiable. But to tell someone to get up, pick up your pallet and walk is harder because it's externally verifiable. You can see it like, whoa, this man clearly has legs that are atrophied. Clearly, this man's been lying in the mat. They probably saw him on the street. They know who he is. And all of a sudden, boom, his legs are back, back to normal. He's able to walk. He's able to be coordinated all of a sudden. How many of us who've been injured, who's been immobilized, and when the cast comes off, and all of a sudden you could walk or run normally? Of course not. You have to kind of get used to it after a while. I mean, this man perhaps been in this condition for years. All of a sudden, he could walk. He could have the strength to pick up a pallet or his mat and walk out amongst that crowd. It's a miracle. People would say, wow, how could you deny that one? Well, why did he do this? Why did the Lord do this? Well, let's look at verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is why he did this. This is how providential this man was left in his condition. So that Jesus could forgive. Prove that he is the one who could forgive sins. Who, when it says that he could, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, who is the Son of Man? Four times this title is used in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to get used to hearing this as we journey through Mark. This is Jesus' favorite title to refer to himself. And I believe he's talking to the scribes who understand exactly who he says by calling himself the Son of Man. And in Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of a man that comes down from heaven on the clouds and he's been given all authority, all domain for an eternal kingdom. So when he calls himself the Son of Man, so that you may know, scribes and Pharisees, experts of the law, experts of the Old Testament, that the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one that has authority to forgive sins. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was speaking to them in their language. In John 5, 27, it says, The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. But what's very gracious of the Lord is this, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you may know. The Lord is so gracious. He, this is his attempt to prove to even the scribes and the Pharisees, to the crowd, to the man on the stretcher along with his four other friends, even to us 2,000 years later to know, for us to know that he is the one who forgives sins. He's the son of man. He's the one. He is the one that we, you're hoping to find out about today. 
If you're here thinking, man, who is this Jesus Christ? Maybe maybe just one person here. Perhaps as guests, we're all Christians and we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Perhaps. Maybe there's just one person here right now that says they needed to know, is Jesus the one that could save my soul? In verse 12, I thought this final verse is just like the exclamation point on this moment, right? Boom, there it is, verse 12. He got up and immediately, just like Jesus, he, Jesus does things immediately, immediately picked up the pallet, went out in the, front of, in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Immediately this man is healed. Immediately this man is forgiven. Immediately this man begins to walk with Jesus Christ. This is a command. Get up, pick up your pallet and walk home is a command. And what do Christians do? What do redeemed men and women do? They follow Jesus. They obey him. This man takes his first act of worship and says, okay, I'll do exactly what you say. Changed lives. Forgiven people are changed forever. We're not the same. If people think that have known you for years and years and you're exactly the same, you really need to evaluate your belief in Jesus Christ. People, your mothers, your parents, old friends from back in the day should be able to say, man, you're a little bit different. Your interests are different. Your character is different. The things that you say, talk about, the things that you watch, you keep talking about Jesus. You should be different. Change lives. This is amazing. Jesus graciously proves that he is the one to forgive sins. I mean, he, not only does he stop at the paralytic, he extends his love from son to all the sons and daughters throughout eternity in this moment. He could have just, you know, forgiven them, just left them at that. No, no, no. The Lord is a million steps ahead of everybody else. He knows what he's doing. He's connecting the dots from this paralytic through Mark, through all the saints, through the ages, to us years later, to let you know, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. What else do you need to hear? What else do we need to know? Here's a point of application. Uh, I, I see this as a huge trial. The, the paralytic, uh, the Pharisees, and we know what the Bible says in James, trials develop character and faith. We understand this, but also I believe that trials also certainly reveal the type of faith that you own. The quality of your faith is revealed when you're going through difficult times. If you're suffering an injury, if suffering a loss of friends, suffering through difficult things like Pastor Kim, I'm super encouraged talking to him because although he's genuine and he expresses some concern, his faith is pretty strong now. It's just amazing. Trials reveal the quality of your faith. Trials are like tests to show us, to show us, and I point to yourself, to show us, not God, not God. God already knows. He knows everything, right? He can read people's minds. Show us. Tests are for us. It's for our benefit to show us where we're at, to show us what's in the inside. This is like a spiritual CAT scan to show us what we actually believe within our spiritual hearts. Culturally, I mean, the last two years, you know, we, we just had a great staff retreat with the families, and it was a wonderful time. And I was kind of sharing a little bit with our staff and, our, and, the, and the wives. Culturally, I mean, we went through a COVID season the last, I don't know, two years or so. And I think it really revealed or even exposed the faith of many. 
I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Just think about it. Who comes to mind? Who comes to mind during his last two years? What's happened? And many, you know this, many have turned to other things besides Jesus. You, those who you thought, man, this, this man or woman is definitely in Christ. What? Many have prioritized other activities than to gather on the Lord's Day with the church. You know this is true. Just look around. This is true. However, many have also gone deeper into Christ on the exciting part of it. Others have gone deeper. I'm going deeper, deeper into his word, deeper into discipleship, relationships, deeper into seeking God and how to serve him more. Perhaps in your retirement years. I mean, you're going deeper. You're drilling down deeper. Isn't this amazing? And this is not about anything for us to brag about. This is what God's work in you and me. God brings us trials to encourage us. As a pastor, I'm very aware of trials within our church here at Evergreen. I'm very aware. There's been a lot of transition of people. I understand this. We're dealing with financial difficulties and stuff like this that we haven't experienced in a long time. The thoughts that come to my mind as I pen this sermon is, do our eyes turn to numbers? Do our eyes turn to people? Do our eyes turn to programs? Like, we need to get this method going to attract more people. No. No. Just like the four other men that were relentless in trying to get people to Jesus, our mission is to get people to Jesus Christ. Our mission is to keep looking at Jesus, keep staring at Jesus, keep getting a clear picture of who Jesus is through the preaching of his word, through the studying of his word, through praying, through fellowship, through discipleship. This is where we're going to go. We're absolutely zeroed in on this mission. This is what we've been called to do. It's crystal clear. This is, this is not... Rocky's vision or Rocky's thing of this. No, this is Jesus is saying to do this, to bring people to Jesus, to come to Jesus, to come to Jesus with our suffering and our hurts, to come to Jesus with our joys and our and, and the excitement things, exciting things of our lives. We need to remain true to our Lord. That's what we're gonna do. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. In conclusion, here. Uh, I just want to ask one fundamental question to everyone here. I realize I'm talking to a room full of believers, but I also know that there are non-believers in here as well. Just one fundamental question. You need to answer before the Lord right now. Has Jesus said to you, your sins are forgiven? To those who answer no, to non-Christians here, we're all like spiritual paralytics. This is a big metaphor for our condition before God. Sin has crippled us all. Unforgiven sinners are like handicapped people confined to live only for today in this world. That's what unforgiven sinners are like. You're in the metaphorical wheelchair living only for today. And your motto is, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, and we're going to be merry because tomorrow I'm going to die and it's over. That's your motto. And, and, and really, that is the truth that you need to be confronted with right now. And I hope you're taking this in love because I may not know your condition. I may not know who I'm actually talking to right now, but... 
Don't you want to hear your sins are forgiven? Don't you want to hear that? Because unforgiven sin keeps us from an abundant life. Unforgiven sin keeps us from eternal life. And the abundant life, eternal life, is only found in Jesus Christ. You can come into the family of God today. You could get dropped down on the pallet of your life and dropped in front of the lap of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And notice how he calls him son, his family. You could become the part of the family of God today. Today. Guest, I'm talking to you. You don't need to look around. I'm talking to you. You know who I'm talking to. You need to have your sins forgiven. Trust that Jesus has authority to forgive your sins. Nobody else. Nobody else. You can have your sentence reversed right now. By trusting that Jesus Christ, God himself, became a man and died on the cross for your sins. He paid the price. He ransomed you. He bought you back from from eternal destruction and resurrected on the third day. And he's believed that he's coming back in the clouds for you someday. Believe he's coming back. He is coming back. We understand this. Won't you believe and give your life to Christ today? This is Communion Sunday. Prepare us for communion right now. And the Lord Jesus Christ Church has given us two ordinances, correct? Two ordinances. One is baptism, one is communion. I heard this the other day. I thought this would be helpful. Baptism is like one, one coming into the many. Baptism is one coming into the many. Well, communion is like the many getting brought into the one, the one body of Jesus Christ. Baptism is like one coming into the many. Communion represents the many coming into one, into the body of Christ. This is the most unifying time in the life of the church. I love saying that because it's true. Because this is where we, we reaffirm our Lord's commitment to us. We reaffirm our commitment to our Lord. And we reaffirm our commitment to one another. But before we come to the Lord's table now, we need to take communion in a worthy manner. We understand this. We've talked about this many times over the last couple of years. And the Lord's Supper is only for the family of God. If you're non a believer, if you're not a Christian, we ask you to hold off. This is for the family of God. This is all those who have heard, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. It's only for, for, for the Christians. So please, we ask you to hold off. We're, you, you're, we're glad that you're here. We're glad, you're always welcome here. But this time is for the family of God. Now for brothers and sisters, you know we talk about how do you take communion in a worthy manner, in a sincere manner. Let me just read Psalm 32 for us, 3 and 5. David said, When I kept silent about my sin, is there sin that you're silent about? My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, this is God's hand, is against unrepentant sinners, Christians. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Then what happened? 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to you, the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David said in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. We need to come to the Lord's table with clean hands. And right now I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession. And in the middle, I'll let you know, we're going to have a time where you could do some business with God. If the Lord is bringing some things to mind that we need to repent of, take it privately to the Lord. He sees and hears your heart. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'll let you know, and then I'll close off the prayer. And then the, the music team will come back up for another song. When you're ready, come on up to receive the elements. Go back to your seats, and I'll come back up to lead us to take the bread and the cup together as one family of God. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that no longer bulls are required as sacrifice in the temple. Thank you that animals no no longer need to be slaughtered before you. But what you require from us, as you see in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Lord, you want us to come to you broken and honest. And you say, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there, any, there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, examine us. Bring to mind the things that we need to repent of. Bring to mind the things that we need to let go of. Bring to mind the things that, as Christians, as sons and daughters of you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, are no longer acceptable for us to think about, for us to do, for us to talk about. I pray, Lord, that you bring these things to mind. Even if this is a repeated stumbling, this is an area of weakness for us, I pray, Lord, that we will come to you as a loving Father. We will believe that you have forgiven us of our sins and we could come to you as your sons and daughters. Now, church, the things that perhaps that you've been thinking about, take them to the Lord. Confess these things to the Lord right now. Father, we desire to come to the table with great joy, the joy of our salvation. Please prepare our hearts to receive communion, take communion together as a church family. Please unify the body at Evergreen Church. Please use this time of singing to prepare our hearts to come to you with a joyful heart. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.